All By Ourselves, a podcast of the Haverford Township Free Library. My name is Mary Bear Shannon. I am here with my reference colleagues, and we are here to talk about what we have been reading recently. I am here with Mandy. Hello. And Kim. Hello. And Amy. Hi. So, we are gearing up for the summer, and we have been reading things for the season. And so, Mandy, why don't you start with telling us what you have been reading? Okay. When I sat down to consider what book I wanted to review for the podcast this month, I wanted to review something a little bit lighter. I've been reading a lot of heavier books on denser subject matter, but it's summer, and it's Pride Month. So I thought that a lighter LGBTQ plus book would be a good fit. To that end, the book that I have chosen for the podcast this month is a romantic fantasy novel called A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk. This book is supposed to be the first in the Last Binding series. It is available in Libby and Overdrive, but it is also available as part of our physical collection. A Marvelous Light was a best of 2021 pick for NPR, a library reads pick, and was the 2022 winner of the Romantic Novel Award in Fantasy. It takes place in the late 1800s in an alternate Great Britain, A clerical error lands down-and-out nobleman Sir Robert Blythe in a new job for the home office. Never informed of what he is to do there, he is just told to be in a specific office at a specific time, where he meets a woman who he is told is his secretary. She also refuses to tell him what his position entails. It's only when he gets a visitor that things become more clear. When Edwin Corsi bursts into the office for a meeting, he is surprised to find Robin there instead of the man who occupied the office before him. He introduces himself as a magician and the liaison to the minister and proceeds to introduce Robin to an underground world of magic, aghast that Robin doesn't already know, as Robin's position is usually held by a person who has no magical abilities but is born into a magical family, so who would already know what magic is and all those things. Um, And with the thought that he would have to wipe Robin's memory after this puzzle was solved, the duo embark on an adventure to discover what happened to the man who held the office of civil service liaison to the magical society before Robin held it. As he tries to assist Edwin, Robin is thrown into a deadly and beautiful world that he had no idea existed. In this world, he gets hunted by magical thugs who are convinced that he knows the location of an item hidden by his predecessor. He gets hit with a painful and potentially fatal curse that gives him the ability to see into the future, and he gets introduced to Edwin's family, who are an old magical family with strong abilities that unfortunately Edwin does not possess. While he possesses very little actual magical ability, Edwin does have a keen intellect and well-developed powers of observation that he and Robin use to try to find the cure to the curse and solve the overarching puzzle. So that is the fantasy portion, which is fun. With an interesting system of magic, it kind of involves your hands creating cat's cradle-like patterns with string. It's really interesting and just kind of like projecting it forward. And it has fascinating characters that while they have weaknesses, they leverage their strengths and work together very well throughout the book. They work together so well, in fact, that they fall in love. This brings me to the romance portion of the book. It really is nice to watch the relationship between these two characters each with their own hang-ups, shames, and complex emotions evolve. Between the running for their lives parts, the exploration of the world parts, and the interactions with different characters, the relationship between Robin and Edwin develops rather quickly into a steamy affair. 
And just so you know, there are a number of slightly more graphic than usual uh, sex scenes in the book between them as they explore being in a relationship with each other. This might actually have overshadowed the mystery plot for me in some places because of that level of passion. It is a relationship that becomes so intense and important to both of them that Edwin has to decide whether he wants to erase Robin's memory after all when the case is solved. Even if it means trusting Robin with the dangerous knowledge of the magical society that no true non-magical civilian is ever supposed to be able to have. This is a fun read full of magic and romance, and the characters are flawed and imperfect in how they navigate the world. It's really interesting. Oftentimes when I've read a story where someone of non-magical ability is introduced into a world of magic, the person who does so is extremely powerful already in that magical ability. But Edwin suffers from feelings of shame and inadequacy, knowing that he doesn't have the abilities that someone in his family is supposed to possess. It is good for somebody who likes historical fiction overlaid with a magical reality, somebody who likes a little bit of fan fiction in their writing, and somebody who just likes a good story. I really look forward to reading more in the series and seeing what will happen next in the world that Freya Marsk has created. So this is Mary. Mandy, so just to clarify, this is the first of a series? Yes, it is the first of a series and it's called The Last Binding. I guess because they call the cat's cradle movements that they make with string, they call binding. So I guess it makes sense with the larger magical aspect. And subsequent books have not been published, so Correct. we have to wait. Yes, oh. yeah, we do. Nope, this is the first one. That's going to be hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, uh, I guess for people who might like the genre and Kim here, it's fantasy romance, but does it lean more on the fantasy more so than the romance for people who want to read a fantasy novel more so than, again, a romance book? I would say that somebody who is not looking for any kind of a romance novel should not read this book. It is at best, I would say, 50-50. I've read a number of reviews that said that the relationship between the two, the way that it progressed, and just the way that they interacted with each other was so interesting and well-written that that overshadowed the more action-packed parts that involved more of the magic. But they're really very interwoven in this book, and you can't avoid it, either one. Okay, so that's what Manny's been reading. So again, this is Mary, and I'm going to talk about what I have been reading. I have to say I am not done with this book, but I am about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through. I am reading this book for our Hooked on History book group that meets on the fourth Monday of the month. We selected Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. And Graff is a journalist and a historian, and he is known for his New York Times bestseller, The Only Plane in the Sky, which I believe was about 9-11, which was really well received a couple of years ago. So most people know Watergate from the movie All the President's Men that highlights the work of the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. The book in the subsequent movie only covers actually the first six months of the scandal when only a few journalists were covering the story. And there was a lot of pressure to let the story go because there was a lot of pushback from the White House and from others who just didn't believe the story. This book, Watergate, A New History, is a narrative history of Watergate. And some might ask, do we need another history of Watergate? And I say from reading the reviews, the arguments are mostly yes. 
as this history explores the full scope of the scandal through the politicians, investigators, journalists, and informants in this really gripping tale of intrigue, power, and its abuses, and the twists and turns that the scandal took in the two years between the break-in and Nixon's resignation in August of 1974. There's a fair amount of renewed interest at the moment about Watergate. Um, the 50th anniversary of the break-in is actually coming up this Friday, June 17th. The break-in was on that date in 1972. And also weirdly interesting is that as I've been reading this book, um, the country has been thinking about this anniversary. It coincides with public congressional hearings that are being conducted by the January 6th committee which are being held and televised both in prime time and during the day at this point. So my memories of Watergate, like Vietnam, were mostly of talking heads on the evening news reporting the emerging scandal. Like Vietnam, my seven-year-old self did not know what the big deal was. I do remember my mother watching the testimony of John Dean during the congressional hearings that aired during daytime television. Dean was a White House lawyer that orchestrated the cover-up and then turned and testified about his complicity and that of all his colleagues in the White House and the higher-ups that really pointed towards Nixon. The hearings, when they were being broadcast, bumped many daytime TV favorites such as The Price is Right in the morning and soap operas like Another World, which was my mother's favorite, in the afternoon. And as much as many people initially complained about the 11-plus weeks of televised hearings in the summer of 1973, most Americans got caught up in the drama of the testimony like John Dean. And in fact, studies showed later that the majority of Americans had at least watched 30 hours of testimony that summer. So as much as they didn't like the interruption, they were really caught up in the drama and the scandal. So here are the facts. In the early hours of June 17, 1972, a security card named Frank Willis enters six words into the logbook of the Watergate office complex that will change the course of history. 1.47 a.m., found tapes on doors, called police. The subsequent arrests of five men seeking to bug and burgle the Democratic National Committee offices, three of them Cuban exiles and two of them from former intelligence operatives, quickly unravels a web of scandal that ultimately ends a presidency and forever alters views of moral authority and leadership. Watergate, as the event is called, becomes a shorthand for corruption, deceit, and unanswered questions. Graf gives quite a bit of context to help the reader understand the background that gave rise to the burglary. The story really begins in 1971 with the publication of thousands of military and government documents known as the Pentagon Papers, which reveal dishonesty about the decades-long American presence in Vietnam, and it sparked outrage. Furious that the leak might expose his administration's own duplicity during a crucial re-election season, President Richard M. Nixon gathers his closest advisors and gives them implicit instructions, win by any means necessary. Within a few months, an unsteady line of political dominoes were positioned from the creation of a series of covert operations codenamed Gemstone to campaign trail dirty tricks, possible hostage situations, and questionable fundraising efforts, much of it caught on the White House's own taping system. 
One by one, they fall until the thwarted June burglary attracts the attention of intrepid journalists, congressional investigators, and embattled intelligence officers, one of whom will spend decades concealing his identity behind the alias Deep Throat. As each faction slowly begins to uncover the truth, a conspiracy deeper and more corrupt than anyone thought possible emerges, and the nation is thrown into a state of crisis as its government and its leader unravels. The history was very well researched. Graff uses newly public documents, transcripts, and revelations. He recounts every twist with remarkable detail and a page-turning drama, bringing readers to the back rooms of Washington, chaotic daily newsrooms, crowded Senate hearings, and even the Oval Office itself during one of the darkest chapters in American history. So of all the books written about Watergate, including Graff's book, there are some questions that never got answered. Who officially ordered the break-in? What was the aim? And were such central players as Howard Hunt and James McCord cooperating with the CIA even as they orchestrated the break-in? I found the book to be a page-turner, with Graff's narrative style meticulously unfolding the layers of the scandal. In a New York Times review, Graff is described as a lively writer who explores the dramatic scope of the Watergate saga. In a Washington Post review, they described Graff's writing as he convincingly populates and recreates an extraordinary time in the history of the country and of Washington, D.C. So Watergate, A New History is available in book form in our collection and is on the Haverford Navy e-readers. Thank you, Mary. This is Amy. I'm curious if you would recommend this book to someone with little knowledge of Watergate or if the reader should have a strong background in the scandal. You know, I think probably anybody who just has an interest because he is so meticulous in his details, I think that anybody who doesn't know who Howard Hunt is or doesn't know who James McCord is, he's going to tell you who they are and he's going to give you a lot of background. And again, that may sound deadly dull, but the way he wrote it is just captivating. It was really a page turner. So I don't think you necessarily have to have a lot of background. I mean, Quite frankly, until a couple of years ago, all I knew is that Nixon resigned and that there were these two Washington Post reporters. I don't think I knew much about it. And mostly it's because I was a kid at the time. I mean, I heard the word Watergate, but I didn't know what it meant. So I think that he gives such good detail. If you have an interest, absolutely. He's not dropping names that he doesn't then describe. Well, I'm just wondering, I know the book is lengthy, so does he fill some of the information in terms of that lengthy novel with information on Nixon, his presidency, or is it just entirely focused on Watergate? Actually, it does give a fairly good history of Nixon as a politician, and it does address his life before politics, but it goes actually back to his original campaign for Congress in the late 40s, which was actually also filled with dirty tricks. And he was a major McCarthyite during the 1950s, and he used communism as a way to beat his opponent. His opponent. And I think the way he weaves the story about how did Nixon get to the point where he was so paranoid about losing and the election. 
I think it describes the time when he was vice president, but also his loss to Kennedy in 1960, and then his subsequent loss of the California governor's race in 1962. When he conceded that election, he made the statement, you're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore, which I think really describes his kind of persecution complex, especially with the media. He never trusted the media, and he was just fanatical about trying to figure out where the leaks were in his administration because he felt like things were coming out, and he didn't know how they were coming out, and he just really distrusted the media and how they were portraying him. So, Mary, the author, you said, described Nixon and everything. Did he have any kind of bias specifically that you noticed toward or against Nixon? Well, I... I don't think he cared for Nixon. I think there's enough evidence that shows that he said he wasn't a crook, but he really was. I think he portrayed Nixon in a very human kind of way. I felt like he was able to kind of get to some of the reasoning why he was the way he was, which I think maybe lends some sympathy towards understanding it. Although I think he still, you know, at the end of the day, it was like this guy was guilty and he should have he should have resigned. What I found more interesting was people who had been portrayed at the time as more sympathetic, and I'm specifically thinking of John Dean, who testified for days and days and days about his involvement. And I still remember my mother expressing sympathy towards John Dean. I mean, he was kind of seen as this kind of nerdy guy. They actually told him to put horned rim glasses on. That wasn't something he normally wore. There were a lot of people who felt very sympathetic. And I found this book, at least Garrett Graff, to be really portraying him in less than a sympathetic light. I really think the way he was portrayed was more that he was self-interested and he just didn't want to go to jail. Um, I think overall he portrays a lot of these guys as just getting caught up in the moment and having somebody who was really powerful pay attention to them, John Dean especially, and they were flattered and they wanted to seem important and they wanted to have their finger on the pulse of power. And that can be a really addictive drug, people who want to be part of where power is. And the thing is, is that then they got caught up in it. And the reality is they all went to jail and Nixon was pardoned (laughs) by Gerald Ford. So there is some injustice too. And I felt like he was able to kind of delve into some of these characters and really maybe be sympathetic in terms of understanding how you might very well get caught up into that and caught up in the moment, especially if it's your party, if it's something that you feel the things that you're working for are important. But does honesty and constitutionality trump your dedication to whatever your side is advocating or what your political goals are? And I think that the answer resoundingly is no. (laughs) In the long run, we're, we're asking our politicians to be honest. And at least in this case, as much as it was two years, the bad guy did resign eventually. And that, I don't know if it gives me hope, but I do think that it was a system of checks and balances that actually worked, at least in that instance. So anyway, moving on, Amy, why don't you tell us what you've been reading? So initially, in preparing for this podcast, I was going to talk about the book that we were reading for May's featured book club, which was Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And it's not that I don't recommend that book. I was pleasantly surprised by it. And I do recommend that our listeners do read that book. But I just started reading a fantastic new debut novel by Lauren McBrayer 
called Like a House on Fire. And although I'm not quite finished reading this book, I wanted to discuss it in this month's podcast because it is a good selection for Pride Month. And here's why. The book asks the question, what would you do if you found the spark that made you feel whole again? For the novel's protagonist, Merritt, that spark was missing from her life after 12 years of marriage and two kids. Merritt had begun to feel like a stranger in her own life. She tried to rekindle it by returning to her career as an architect at Jagger and Brandt, where her brilliant and beautiful boss, Jane, decides to overlook the break in Merritt's resume and give her a shot. As the book describes, quote, Jane is a supernova, witty and dazzling and unapologetically herself. And as the two work closely together, their relationship becomes a true friendship. In Jane, Merritt sees the possibility of what a woman could be. And Jane sees Merritt exactly for who she is. Not the wife and mother dutifully performing the roles expected of her, but a whole person, unquote. Now, I've not gotten this far into the book yet, but because of this, their relationship quickly becomes a, quote, cornerstone in Merritt's life. And as Merritt starts to open up her mind to the idea of more, more of a partner, more of a match, more out of love, she begins to question, what if the love of her life isn't the man to whom she's married? What if it's Jane? Unquote. So this book was recommended to me by a friend of mine who is a voracious reader. She reads maybe six to eight books a month. Like a House on Fire was one of her recent favorites. And I can see why. From the beginning, I was hooked. The characters to me are just so real. They're relatable, the dialogue flows naturally and organically, and their life situations are just believable. I'm a fan of both Merritt and Jane for different reasons. I see a lot of myself in Merritt. Not only do I identify as a queer person, and I'm somewhat introverted, and I have a similar story to Merritt's, but she's also flawed and awkward and still lovable. I also see a lot of my friends in Merritt. She is in her mid to late 30s. She has two young kids. She's exhausted most of the time. She's the one kind of running the household. And she's at the point in her life where she's starting to question, is there more? Is there something else? Where is the spark? I used to be so much more. Is there something else? Now, Jane, on the other hand, is outgoing, funny, possesses so many other endearing qualities, which make her a unique match for Merritt. Good Housekeeping notes that, quote, Jane injects Merritt's life with a jolt of electricity that's more than a work friendship. It's a chance to imagine a different kind of life. This story of female relationships will spark your own imagination, too, unquote. In a starred review, Kirkus Reviews says, quote, with a zippy pace, punchy dialogue, and beautifully crafted sentences that manage to capture the tenderness of longing and self-discovery, Merritt and Jane's love story feels both realistic and escapist, a queer romance done right, unquote. And Booklist called it, quote, compelling, an exploration of love that not only brings steamy physical satisfaction, but also allows Merritt to become vulnerable and honest with herself and her partner for the first time. Recommended for readers who enjoy introspective relationship fiction, unquote. I'm personally intrigued to see where this book goes with the plot of Merritt's decisions. Does she stay married to her husband? Does she finally find fulfillment? Does she follow that spark and leave her husband for Jane? So come find out with me. Read Like a House on Fire. It is available on Libby. So it sounds like the book is a character-driven sort of story rather than literary or romance. Would you say that it's more focused on the characters than anything else? 
from what I've seen so far, it's definitely a character study on merit, and I wouldn't necessarily consider this literary fiction. It definitely does have some of that romance in there, and I do think that it's a good book for a nice summer read. So you mentioned that Jane would be Merritt's boss. Yes. How do they overcome or like what kind of a relationship do they have with that power dynamic as boss and employee and a potential relationship? Good question. So from the get-go, their relationship starts very informal. There's a lot of joking around. It starts almost as a nice informal friendship even though there is that power dynamic of boss and employee. I haven't unfortunately gotten far enough in the book to see how that's going to play out. And like I said, I'm intrigued to see exactly where this is going. I'm not sure if Merritt needs to leave her position, if some kind of romantic relationship ensues. But that is interesting because there are consequences to boss-employee relationships And so that would be interesting to see exactly how that plays out in the book. But from the get-go, there is definitely a spark between the two. And it starts very early on in the novel. However, Jane, just from her demeanor, is very kind of informal. She jokes around a lot. She's playful. And we'll see exactly where that goes in their relationship. So um, remind me how old the kids are. She has an infant and a toddler. All right, because I was just wondering about, I mean, I feel like um, someone who's been through that period, it's really, really tough. (laughs) You do get those moments where you have the thousand-mile stare and you think, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Do you think some of this is just exhaustion from being a new mom, or do you think it's really her exploring an undiscovered identity? I'll have to see how the author writes it. The author herself is queer, so I'm not sure if she is writing the book as far as a person in merit who is exploring a queer identity, or like you said, a person who is exhausted and looking for a way out of this just (laughs) day-to-day. So it can really go either way. And I think that myself as a reader of this book and somebody who's enjoying the book thus far, and maybe our listeners would want to engage with this and see in what direction the author wanted to take it. Okay. And then last but not least, Kim, tell us what you've been reading. All right. Well, I just recently read the book Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, and I initially didn't even know this book existed. I heard about a review on NPR where they interviewed the author, and it got me hooked, and I read it, and I was a patroner, couldn't put it down. But basic story is that it follows a woman called Elizabeth Zott in the 1950s, 60s period, and she's a chemist, and she is very odd because she thinks in a very scientific manner and everybody else around her at that time period all the other women she can't get along with because they're at home mothers and they're thinking about fashion and cooking the meal for the kids and the husband and all these other things that women would do in that time period but all Elizabeth ever wants to do is chemistry she just thinks about chemistry all the time and solving all sorts of problems in life in relation to chemistry and that puts her at odds with everybody else even because 
1950-60 period, women chemist is very odd. It's peculiar. It's almost unheard of, but she got through school, and unfortunately, just before she's about to get her degree, her male professors, of course, turned her down, so she has something of a low-level job as a chemist at a university, researching everything, but she gets a break when she somehow falls in love with a man by the name of Calvin Evans, who's got a lot of connections to say the least and he doesn't tell her that he's helping her out on the sidelines she thinks she's doing everything based on her own accomplishments she's a little shall we say ignorant because she's thinking of everything again just that she can do it all based on merit that she has the knowledge to do everything but then sadly calvin dies and with that dries up all her resources and so at some point against all odds she gets hooked into doing a cooking show uh where supper just, at six she had a child with calvin and she's again thinking scientifically taking care of her child and there was some trouble at school and she went to talk with the parents of a kid who got an alt not so much an altercation with her child but that the reason she got hooked into the cooking show is because she's a good cook and so the child at school was taking her child's food and she wasn't understanding why her child wasn't getting all the nutrition that a good child needs to get and everything and short story short that the father of the other child is a producer at this tv station and he needed something because his producer was pressuring him to get a new show on the air and he was impressed by elizabeth and so he asked her to do the show called supper at six of course she doesn't want to do it but at this time period when she doesn't have the resources due to Calvin not being there anymore, she accepts because it does pay her more than just that lowly position at the university. And so, yeah, the story just follows her life in terms of trying to balance being a chemist because that's what she's obsessed with over doing this show that doesn't seem like it'll get off the ground, but it does because she's very factual and the producers demand she dress in this tight dress, you know, be prim and proper, but she just dresses like a chemist, you know, very practical and people like her because she's very blunt about everything and... <laughs> Even the men who watch her TV show just like how she talks about all this food and advice on things. And so it was a very fun read. Page Turner, I couldn't turn it down. And only thing I would say to anyone who's interested in reading it, it seems a little odd, but <laughs> I can understand. The author interjects her obsession with rowing into the book. So there's all sorts of references to rowing. And again, Elizabeth takes sort of this chemist approach to things. Yeah. <laughs> But either way, it was a very fun read. I did enjoy it, and I highly recommend it as something to read. So would you say that her approach to her cooking is very scientific? Because the reality is, is a lot of cooking is chemistry. I definitely found that when I took a food prep class in high school, that I learned that there's a lot of chemistry involved with cooking. Did she approach it that way on her show? Yeah, in every form uh, she did, she used all sorts of scientific terms, and this is also fun little things that popped up in the story, just how the producers were getting aggravated over people calling, asking them why is she using these scientific terms instead of using something like saying baking soda, vinegar. She uses scientific terms to describe them, and they have to explain to the callers, no, she actually meant this, not this scientific stuff we know absolutely nothing about and so it's very fun to read how she's talking about chemistry and yeah <laughs> people getting frustrated with her using scientific terms rather than you know everyday words 
If you're aware, do you know if the author had experience in cooking or chemistry um, aside from rowing? <laughs> yeah, uh, aside from rowing, the author herself, when I was listening to the interview on NPR, which got me interested in reading the book, she doesn't have so much a background in chemistry, but what also got me interested in reading it is that she actually had to research chemistry herself. She actually went online, found a textbook from the 1950s on chemistry so that she could know scientific terms and how they would have used chemistry in the 1950s compared to right now. I mean, she could have just gone onto like Wikipedia and used something from there, but she did go and do her research into chemistry and how it would have been in the 1950s period. So do you feel that a reader would benefit from any kind of scientific knowledge or background, or would they find it accessible even if they had no knowledge of science or chemistry or anything like that whatsoever? Ah, yeah, good question, because she did do the research on chemistry. She does use scientific terms that a chemist would have used because the character is a chemist, of course, but she doesn't obsess over it. It's more the focus on Elizabeth and her struggle in terms of being a woman in the 1950s, 60s period where men just were very sexist, to say the least. <laughs> I'm embarrassed at all the cases of men viewing her as just a girl, so to speak. But uh, yeah, background in chemistry and everything, it, doesn't benefit in terms of just that she doesn't use too much chemistry, focus on Elizabeth's struggle as a woman in that period, but yeah, a little bit of knowledge on it, so. Actually, I have one other question. So I think it's interesting that NPR is the interview you heard because it was public television that really started the whole revolution of cooking on television with Julia Child in the early 1960s. Did they talk at all about it being this new innovative medium to convey information about cooking? Was there any discussion about that being kind of groundbreaking at the time? Not too much, only in the sense that what happened was with the TV producer, they were just trying to find someone to do a show. Then they gave the directive to the person who hired Elizabeth, and that guy was forward-thinking in regards to that. He did everything within his power to make certain that Elizabeth stayed on the air, even though the producers, again, were exasperated with her, wanted her off the air because they were just trying to find something that was disposable because create a show, make a little money, get rid of the other one, get a new show, and so on. But yeah, forward thinking in regards to he did see the potential in Elizabeth's show, whereas the other producers didn't, so. Okay, well, that is it for what the reference librarians have been reading here at the Haverford Township Free Library. Thank you so much for joining us for All By Our Shelves. We hope you have a great day. Mm-hmm.